So, growing up, or I guess since Aaliyah has identified old as 30 to 50, um, my really old parents who are above 50, when they were growing up, there was a movie that came out called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Has anybody seen that in here? I see a couple hands. A few people are like, I'm not identifying as I've seen it because she just said 50 was old. I don't know what after 50 is. Uh, this movie came out in 66, and I'll be honest, I've never watched the whole thing. Um, I've probably watched clips. I, I realized that when I looked it up, and on Wikipedia, it said that it was an hour and 77 minutes long. That's a long movie, right? I thought Marvel movies were pretty long at like two hours and some change, but over almost three hours worth of a movie. So anyway, before we get too far into this tangent that I'm running on, I, I've never seen the movie, but I like the title. I like being able to look at my friends and think of myself as the good while they were the bad and the ugly. Um, whether that was true or not was up to uh, debate. But either way, I want to use that title this morning as we begin to tell the story that picks us up from the two stories that we've been telling in the last couple of weeks. So if you've been here with us, um, this format will make sense. If you haven't been, I'll give you a quick disclaimer. Um, I like telling stories. I don't know that I'm particularly adept at it, but I do like storytelling and story listening because what I've come to realize is in the story and the telling of, we begin to understand what it is that God's saying to us. I'm not one that responds extremely well to a black and white rule, do this, don't do that. I am one who seems to respond well when somebody tells me a story and helps me understand why this matters in my world. So I'm going to continue that pattern today, and we're actually going to use kind of three prompts, and we're going to begin with the place that it begins with, the good. So the good, and last week we left off in Genesis chapter 20, a story in which we looked at the inhospitality of a city-state known as Sodom and Gomorrah versus the hospitality of the one called by God in Abraham. We, we saw on one level this place where, where people who were different, who were outsiders, were pushed away. They were violently and, and oftentimes even in ways that we don't even want to speak of treated so poorly. But, but then on the other side, we saw Abraham. This man of radical hospitality who, who invites in the stranger, who, who feeds them, who gives them nourishment, who gives them rest. And what we see is this counterbalance, this coin, if you remember, where two sides seem to represent our ability on one hand and then on the other. The chance to be people of hospitality and blessing to the world here and to be people of selfishness, self-centeredness, and also self-protection on the other. What we found ourselves doing was wrestling with these questions of what do we do for the stranger? How, how do we as God's people find ourselves in the midst of a world that, that looks so uniformly like a place of inhospitality? How do we push against the majority to be the hands and feet of Christ, of, of creation, as is our imperative by God Almighty? How do we embody this grace? As we wrestled with these stories, what, what we found was Abraham and his family, they, they get this right a lot, but they also get it wrong. There's moments in which they behave in such a manner that we would look at and say, go and do likewise. And then there's these other places where we say, I don't know about that. As the chapters continue to unwind until our story this morning, what we find is Abraham's family grows. This pattern of getting it right and getting it wrong, it, it continues. The, the narrator, the storyteller of Genesis continues to give us these options and opportunities in which we see the good and yet we find the failure, the blessing and the curse. 
In fact, it goes back and forth, back and forth until we get to our story this morning that begins at the very last verse of chapter 33 and then carries us into 34, where Abraham's grandson, Jacob, is now the focus of God's narrative. See, Jacob, if, if you've been around church much, you know he has two names. He's called Jacob. He's also called Israel. And so if you hear me refer to him as one or the other, just know they are the same person. And I may just drop one, whereas the other would be just as appropriate. But either way, when we get to Genesis chapter 33 in the end, in the beginning of 34, what we find is that Jacob and his family, his wives and children, they have moved into this land known as Shechem. They've bought property, and they've begun to grow and and put down roots. And in Shechem, what they find is that the people there like them. In fact, they grow so amicable with one another that even their children begin to play with one another. They, They begin to work together to cooperate, even to the point in which the women begin to work with one another. But unfortunately, as Dinah, Jacob's only named daughter, becomes the focus of the story, We turn to that second part of what we'll be talking about this morning, to the bad. See, for a while now, Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, has been hanging out with the local women. They're doing what women who are unmarried would do. They would collect water. They would help with the household. And and in doing so, she has caught the eye of the local stud. A man who is aptly named also for the city-state in which they live. His name is also Shechem. And Shechem has seen her, he has desired her, and he has pursued her. Sadly, though, Shechem is the type of person who doesn't want to follow the cultural norms of other people. And, And what the text, the story tells us is that in seeing Dinah, he desires her. He pursues her. He takes her, and he humbles her. Now, the text here is a euphemism in being humbled. And and what it ultimately leads us to is this image of one who has had something done to them that they were not in agreement of. Shechem, a man of wealth, power, and fame inside of this city-state, is one who takes desires. And then humbles Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. Now after he does this, something weird happens. I don't know if you know much about people who have forced themselves upon one another, but typically they they are repulsed afterwards. And, And yet what we find here is that Shechem almost instantly realizes that what has happened is wrong. He almost instantly realizes that the wrong that he has done needs to be made right. And the text, the story, it tells us that he falls head over heels in love with her. In fact, so desperately in love is Shechem that he himself then goes and says, I need to make this right. Now, what right looks like in this story is a bit subjective, but the the thing that he does, it, it makes sense to him. And he goes to his father, who is also a man of power, wealth, reputation in this city, a man by the name of Hamor, and he tells him, hey, dad, I've done this pretty terrible thing but I want to make it right. I've fallen in love with someone who I force myself upon. What can we do to fix this? So Hamer, along with his son Shechem here, they they journey over to the house of Jacob and and they begin to speak with him and and to talk to him about what's happened. And, And in the process of this conversation, they propose the solution. 
why not let the kids marry? Now, I can tell you from personal experience, I don't know how your experience is, I would not want to have approached my father-in-law and said to him what Hamor and Shechem had to say. I don't know how I would have begun that conversation. Oh, hey, by the way, this thing happened, and now I'd like you to be my father-in-law. Have you ever met my father-in-law? He probably would have totally and wholly rejected that idea. But yet Jacob in this story, he, he seems to hear this and remain a bit passive. He hears the proposition that they've put forth, the marriage, and, and it seems that the, the question comes up of what exactly should the price be? See, understand this, in, in the culture in which they live, the, the woman's value, right, wrong, or indifferent, and, and I would say it's wrong, um, was only as much as she could provide for the family. What could she provide in in labor and household chores? What could she do to help raise the other children? What could she do to make the lives of the parents a a little bit better? And, And the thing was, whenever she was married, she would no longer be a part of that family. And so she had a value based upon that. Now, this value that is based largely upon her ability to provide there at the family would then be paid by the husband to be in the form of a bride price. So in this story, at this point, the, the men are negotiating, how much is she worth? Now, now, just a side note here, right, wrong, or indifferent, this, this is part of their culture. And, and yet, Dinah is quiet. In fact, she never speaks in this story. And, and again, I know that this is part of what it would have been like in that day, but I can't help but to wonder, if she had a voice, what would she say? How would she have responded to the the conversation that's going on amongst these individuals, men? How would she have said, you know, this is how I feel about this. This is what I experienced when I went through this. I wonder, what would her word be? We'll talk about that a little bit later. And as we return back to our story, what we find is that, that Jacob, yet again, he... He's not quite certain what to say to this man and his son who have come to him beginning to try to bargain for the hand of the daughter who has been violated. And so what he says is kind of strange, but he goes, well, why don't we just wait for my sons to come home? Now, Jacob had a lot of sons, and and they're shepherds. They work out into the fields, and, and when they get home, they will help negotiate the terms of this agreement. Now, this is where the story turns to that third section of that movie from so long ago, that part that begins to look a little bit ugly. Because what happens is when Jacob's sons arrive home, they hear about what's happened and, and they're upset. Well, let's be honest, they're pissed. They're pissed because their sister has been taken and violated by a man from another culture, from a man, another people, and regardless of who it was, the action has been done, and they are They're angry to the point in which they think nothing but what can we do to get back. And so in that thought process, swirling through the back of their minds, they propose this solution, this amicable understanding and agreement amongst the people of these cities. And what they propose is this, circumcision. But not circumcision just for Shechem, not even circumcision just for Shechem and his father Hamor, but circumcision for the entire 
city-state, and all the men, regardless of their age. It's a high price that they ask. In fact, they couch it like this. They, they say, this is what our God has commanded us to do. Our God has given to us this rite of circumcision, this physical reminder of this covenant that he has made. And, and we could never intermingle, intermarry with a people who are not circumcised as we are. Thus, if the relationship amongst your people and ours is to continue, including this marriage between Dinah and Shechem, then that means every male must be circumcised. Now, evidently, Shechem and his father are really, really expert negotiators because not only do they agree to this, but they are also able to convince every male in the city from young to old to undergo this mm, inconvenient process. And so with high hopes, the men of the town take a little off the top. And then they go into recovery. And for days, they are unable physically to do anything at all except rest and recover. That's when things get really bad. See, Simon and Levi, the two biological with the same mother and father brothers of Dinah, they begin to to create this thought process amongst the other sons of Jacob in which they are going to enact their revenge. And while the men of Shechem are in recovery, Simeon and Levi, along with the other brothers of along with the other brothers of Dinah, along with the other children of Jacob, they sneak in and they kill every single male. Not only do they kill every single male, but then they raid every home, they steal the wives and the children, and then they take possession of the city. In the final scene of our story this morning, Jacob hears about what his sons have done and is enraged. He pulls them aside and he begins to land blast them. He he says to them, you have made us a foul odor in this area. What happens if others hear about this? What happens if they know the advantage and the deception that you took on these unknowing individuals? What happens to us when people find out the truth? The brothers, kind of in unison here, end with this strange but yet convicting line that I don't know how to respond to. The only thing I know to do is to say it as they said it, because in hearing their father's complaint, they look and they ask, should our sister have been treated like a prostitute? Have you ever been there before? So angry at a situation or at a person or, or, or just so offended, so deeply offended as to what has happened that you want to get back. You, you feel righteous almost in your anger. You feel justified in your rage. You, you want revenge to be given because of the fact that something has happened to you or someone that you care about. You ever been there before? 
See, a couple weeks ago when I was working out, um, I saw this news story that pops up that unfortunately is almost becoming a framework for what's happening in the world. And, and it was that a, a child had been abused at the hands of a close relative. Someone who was supposed to care for them had taken advantage of a child. For some reason, my, my mind, it, it began to spiral and, and I began to get angry. I, I felt like there needed to be something that was done and And almost instantly, I was reminded of a story that happened six years ago on that Saturday. So in 2013, I did a stint as a chaplain during my time at Campbell. And during this stint as a chaplain, I was required to go in and to do certain duties. And one of those duties was to respond when a chaplain was called on the weekends if I was there serving. And so I had been requested through what was known as a chaplain request, and it was usually a printed out piece of paper that gave a bit of information. And and on this piece of paper, this particular piece of paper, what I saw was the age, the gender, and the story of why the individual was in the hospital. But, But then I saw a physician note. From time to time, a physician would offer a note. And this particular day, this physician note came in, and it said something so strange. It said, the family is struggling, but the father seems heartless. Family is struggling, but the father seems heartless. So as my interest peaked, I I responded by heading off to the PICU, the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit. And when I got there, I I knocked on the door and and slid it open. And I saw a a child laying in the bed and a a mother sitting beside her. And and I notioned to the mother, and she invited my presence in. And and as I'm walking in, what I see is this young girl laying in the bed. and, And she just looks peaceful, at least at first. But then as I come around the bed, what I see is, is something that I shouldn't see. I, I see leaves and, and twigs, branches almost, in her hair. I see dirt smudged all the way from the top of her eyelid to the cheekbone at the bottom. And, and she looks labored. wasn't sure exactly what had happened, but in conversation with the mother who kind of struck up this sterile conversation, I, I found out something a bit interesting. See, she began to talk to me about her child, her, her daughter in that bed. And, and what she said was, was this. She said, she's 16 years old, and for the last two years, she's been living between her mother and her father. Her father, the mother's ex-husband, has really not been paying a whole lot of attention to her lately. In fact, he seems to be more preoccupied with work and personal accomplishment than his 16-year-old daughter. And, and so as a result of that, she's been acting out. She's doing things that are not characteristic of her. She's, she's doing these things that make us afraid. And, and so last night, she was with her dad, and something happened. See, unbeknown to him, she had snuck out of the window and had headed up the street, as any 16-year-old may have, to a get-together with her friends, to a party. At this party, they were drinking, and as they were drinking, some people started pulling out drugs, and eventually it got to this place where the mother just started to weep. It was as if her tear ducts had just opened up, and the stoicism on her face just melted, and she looked me in the eyes, and she said, that's when they gave her acid. And then she went up to the third floor of the house, took off all of her clothes, and began to swing from that balcony and was eventually encouraged to jump, hitting a tree, hitting branches on the way down, 
until she landed in a bed of leaves below and fell into a coma. When I heard that story, I was angry. What in the world? Who, who allows their, their child to, to leave the house and to do that? Who, who gives somebody a substance like that that can do that thing? I mean, who, who stands by while this is going on and just watches as a young person does this and then jumps from the balcony? What kind of people, what kind of horrible, horrible people were there? I found myself getting angry to the point in which I wanted to begin to try and find some way to get justice for this young girl here. And that's when I pulled back for a second, recognizing some of my training, and I calmly excused myself. As I excused myself, I I caught my breath for a moment and, and saw the pediatrician who had sent in the request out of the corner of my eye, one that I had developed a good rapport with. And I, I walked over to her and I asked her, I said, can you tell me anything that, that maybe they couldn't tell me? And she gives me a bit of information. And, and then I asked her about the father. I said, well, you, you put this note in here about the father seems heartless. And she said, yeah, yeah, it's just strange. So he's, he's down there in the waiting room and he's been here since she got here. But there's just something different about him. It's okay, okay. So I walk down to this waiting room where there's one person in, a, a male who, by Aaliyah's standards, is old, um, who's sitting there with his arms kind of crossed, and every couple of seconds or so, he'll move his hands out, do this, and rub his face, and put them in his pockets, possibly. And, and as I'm standing there and I announce my presence, he invites me to come in, and we begin to talk. Like the mother, he's telling me about some of the, the background of the daughter. He's telling me about his work and, and just how busy it is. And, and finally, we get to the events of the prior evening, and that's when he kind of looks at me. And he begins to say some things that really pique my, my interest, if you will. And finally, as, as we get to this place where the conversation's winding down, I ask him, well, how are you feeling? You know, what, what's going on? How might I be help to you and your family. That's when he looks at me and he says, well, well chaplain, I, I guess I just got to say this. I don't really know that I can do anything because kids will be kids. Kids will be kids. I was stunned to the point where I had no words for him either. I didn't know what to say because I was so defensive. I wanted to look at him and scream. I wanted to call him names and, and to give him a piece of my mind. I wanted the anger that was inside of me to be projected, not just verbally, but possibly even physically, upon this seemingly dismissive individual at that moment. Kids will be kids. I imagine, though I could never fully understand what Dinah's brothers were going through, I imagine the bit of anger that they felt in that moment after hearing what had happened to their sister. See, they were angry and offended also. They wanted justice served. They wanted to do what they thought was right and to get revenge. I, too, felt a little of that in that moment. But as I've stepped back, 
As I begin to process through those moments and what was said so long ago, I, I've come to understand something. See, in light of our story that we've just heard about Dinah and, and her brothers, about the violation of Dinah and then the violation of Shechem, I've begun to realize something. I can't do justice right because it's not my place. See, what we find is that so often we are trying to be something that we've never intended to be. The writers of scriptures know this. In fact, they tell us in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, these words, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God to show God's wrath. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35 says, It's mine to avenge, says the Lord. I will repay them. In their due time, their feet will slip. Their day of disaster is near, and their doom will rush upon them. And in Psalm chapter 94, verse 1, it says, The Lord is a God who avenges, a God who avenges who will shine forth. And then they really get to a place that's difficult to hear. Because then we hear scriptures like Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 and 39. You've heard it said, my friends, that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you this. Do not resist an evil person. If one slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, it says, Hatred will only ever stir up conflict, but love, love will always cover all wrongs. 1 Thessalonians 5, 15, it says, Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for others And for everyone. (laughs) Friends, I I can't promise that that even makes sense. (laughs) Even reading it now and hearing what I've said a few times already out loud, it, it runs so asunder to what we understand as justice in the world and around us. I can't imagine now as a a parent myself what it would be like to have to be in the shoes of Jacob. I simply can't. And see, that's part of the interesting thing of this story that the narrator tells us here in Genesis. See, what we've heard over and over again is that this is what God tells us to do, and yet sometimes we don't do that. See, we've heard stories of, of how the ones who are to be a blessing to the world end up being a curse. We've, we've seen stories of radical hospitality paired up with radical inhospitality in cringeworthy ways. And now we're forced to deal with this heavy, hard question. How do we, as a people of grace, respond to wrongdoing? See, my prayer is not that we come to some sort of a simplistic, simple answer. This is what you do every time. But yet that we've come to this place in which we can wrestle with the question and not get up and walk away from the table. This place where we can wrestle with the question with people that we care deeply about, whether it be in our family systems, in our our life groups, in our places of work, in our places of leisure, wherever and with whomever, that we can wrestle with the depth of what it is that the storyteller is telling us today. 
Because when we read the story of the violation of Dinah, we, we find that's horrible. But then we also read the story of the violation of the city of Shechem, and we have to acknowledge the same. And I don't have an answer, but I hope that we have the right questions that we can begin to use for dialogue. So again, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, what you found is that I like to ask questions, not because I think I'm a particularly good question asker, or, or that I think that they have some sort of an answer that can be given, but because I think questions allow us the space and the pause necessary to wrestle with the depth of that which God is calling upon us to do. And so I want to continue that this morning, as has been the custom the last couple of weeks. And so yet again, we're going to have five questions that we're going to ask. Again, not to answer, but hopefully to at least inspire some conversation. So let's hop in with question number one. What does it take to look beyond the past towards the future? See, Shechem in this story does an unthinkable, inhumane thing to an innocent woman. He does this in a way that had it taken place in 2019, I would like to think he would be held accountable. But then he does this next thing, and what he does is he actually steps back and sees the wrong that he's done, and he wants to, he wants to make it right. Truthfully, the the fact is he's done what he's done, and the past is there. How might we be able to move towards the future? For many of us, there's a thing or multiple things that we have in our past that if everybody here knew about, they might not think the same thing of us. In fact, Neil and I were just talking a few moments ago when we got here about how it might be if we were to go back to our teens, our 20s. For him, he's got a little bit longer that he can go from there. I can only go to teens and 20s. And who we were at that time. Would people know us then like they do now? Would people think of us the same way today as they did then? The the question remains, what is it going to take to look beyond the past towards the future? And that moves us to our second question. What should the past cost us if we're looking towards the future? See, a lot of wrong has been done from Shechem. A lot of wrong is is actually going to be done at the hands of Jacob's sons. And and the question is, what is it going to cost? What consequences are we going to pay? Because we know that our actions have consequences. We know this much is certain. And so if we're going to look towards the future, how do we deal with the consequences of our past? For Shechem, there was no limit on this physically, financially. With his reputation, there was nothing that was off the table. Reminds me of a story in the New Testament of a a wee little man, a guy named Zach. Zach was was a tax collector who, who found his way into to learning about Jesus. And in doing so, he, he says, no matter what I've done, I'll make it right. So the question, what should the past cost us if we're looking towards the future? Question number three. 
And this is where we pick back up on that conversation we were having a second ago about Dinah. How do we give a voice to those who have been victimized in the past? In the first message of this series, I asked the question, what does hope look like for the hopeless? And so I think this is a question of similar nature. And, and how do we give a voice to those who have been victimized in the past? Because in this story, Dinah never speaks. She's never asked how she feels. She's never given the ability to have any sort of input in the decisions that are made in her life. And think about it. From the very moment that she's opened up on this story, she's had her, her own She's been taken advantage of in ways that I, I don't even know that we can fully articulate. She's had that taken by Shechem. It's taken then by her father and brothers who negotiate on her behalf. And then finally, it's taken away once an agreement has been reached and she has married this man and the wrong is trying to be made right. He is then killed and she is taken back to her father's house. She becomes a pawn in this large game that is played in this chapter of Genesis. And so I ask this question, how do we give a voice to those who have been victimized in the past? Because we as a culture, we as a church, we get this wrong. We tend to look at people who who have experienced things and, and have survived the things, and we look at them and say, well, you know what? That was in the past. You should be over that by now. Right? We look at these people and we say to them, hey, um... Not that big of a deal. You know, there's people who are starving over here in this place, so what you went through is not that big of a deal. And worse, the, the worst thing we do as a people, whether it's the church or the culture, is that we tend to say things like, well, you might have invited it onto yourself. This may have happened because you did this. See, Victim or survivor shaming is something that happens over and over again each and every day. And so I ask this question, how do we give a voice to those who have been victimized in the past? Question four. And this is one that's, it hits home for me. Because this is the question that says, where have elements of our faith been used for control and not faithfulness? See, circumcision, according to Genesis, is this sign that God and humanity are in covenant together. It is a religious obligation that signifies something spiritual that has happened in the world. And the brothers of Dinah use it as a way to control the situation. I don't even really want to ask for an example. All I want to do is confess guilt to having done this for much of my life. Using elements of my faith to incite fear, anxiety, and worry in those with whom I have an audience. Because I believe that's what makes genuine change. Where have we used elements of our faith Not for faithfulness, but for control. And finally, our fifth and and last question. How do we avoid revenge for the sake of God's call? When I met that father years ago, I was angry. I wanted revenge for the sake of his daughter. 
I blame many people, but he was the easiest one right there. And I thought that that anger, that, that I felt, though it was anger, and anger is not sinful, I thought it would be satisfied if I found a way to right that wrong. See, when we approach the scriptures as we've already seen, <laughs> that's not what they tell us to do. Romans, as we've heard, do not take revenge, but leave room for God. Deuteronomy, it's mine to avenge, says the Lord. The psalmist who says, the God, the Lord, is the one who avenges. And then we're told what to do with it. We're told in Matthew that you've heard an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, if one strikes you on the right, let them also strike you on the left. In Proverbs, hatred stirs up conflict but love covers all wrongs. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 Make sure that we do not pay back wrong for wrong, but strive to do what is right. See, I recognize that I get this wrong more than I do right. I let the anger that, that has righteous anger inside of it become this fuel and almost the justification for doing wrong back to others. Ironically, there's a scripture that we gloss over for the sake of another phenomenal scripture that actually teaches us something about how we are to respond in these moments. See, in Proverbs 31, we oftentimes read about the honorable, the noble, the amazing woman, but what we miss is that right before that part of that passage... Proverbs 31 actually says this. It says, Speak out on the behalf of the voiceless and for the rights of those who are vulnerable. Speak out in order to judge with righteousness to defend the needy and the poor. Friends, I don't have the answer to any of these questions, but yet I hope that they create for us the ability to wrestle with just what the narrator is trying to show us in this story in Genesis. Because I believe it can help transform not only us, but the world around us. This morning as as we close, I, I simply ask that. Wrestle with these questions. Because I believe in wrestling, we come closer to the call of the one who was and is our Savior, Christ Jesus. Will you pray with me? God, the ask is a hard one. But yet, you show us these stories to teach us how we might live. Guide us as we search, keep us in our conversations. And use us as an extension of your blessing to the world and all around us. Show us how to be people of radical hospitality that are able to step back and allow you to be God and us to be what it is you've called us to be. For it is in the name of the one who is called and we have responded. Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you for being with us. It's been a true pleasure. Um, As always, on your way out, take time to grab a cookie and some conversation. We'll see you again next week.